You were all warm enough? It's frozen. It's so bad. It is. It's really bad. It's I couldn't okay get my... Now, this Sorry? Morning, this morning was really bad. Yeah, I had to take a lift in because I couldn't get my car out of the ice. My professor this morning was surprised that people even showed up. To yeah. Oh, well. And here we are. Um, okay, let's see. Olivia? Yes. Ariel? Megan? All right. Max? And Ryan. Cool. Okay, um, so how's Paradise Lost going? Are you having trouble with it at all? Okay, good. Um, no, that's great. Some, some people do. Um, Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot thought that it was not English and shouldn't be read. Um, Ezra Pound was a fascist. Yeah, but Ezra Pound was a fascist. Um, there's a, like literally. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's like not like calling other people fascists where maybe they are, maybe they aren't, maybe you worried. He was an actual fascist. Um, okay, so, um, let's talk a little bit more about Blake and then we'll get to Melvin. Everyone read the first two books? Um, okay, good. Uh, did you like them? Uh, all right. The, let's, let's start with that. Why? Tell me what you liked about them. I'm pretty sure I already read these books at least once before. Uh-huh. I just like that um, Satan is just like such a like relatable character, like more than like, you would expect him to be. Yeah. And that like God really is kind of portrayed as a tyrant, even though you don't really get his point of view from these books at least. Yeah. But I mean, kind of like a cause, like a rebellious cause that I feel like I can get behind. So. All right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, Olivia, you said you you were nodding that you liked yeah, it too. Yeah, a lot of the same reasons. I feel like it's weird because like they're angels, but they feel very human. Uh huh. Which is just an interesting perspective that you don't see very often. Yeah. Um. Good. Megan, what do you think? Um, I mean, I, I like the idea. Of, it's, it's similar thing. Kind of reminds me of the same it's the same general concept, or I suppose the other way around is looking where you're getting perspectives that is entirely different from what we have for a long time. It's just yeah, um, the perspective that's standard is um, Satan is terrible and um, mean and um, selfish, and what he's selfish about is the pleasure that he takes in other people's um, sin and pain. So it's a particularly kind of um, psychopathic selfishness, you might call it. Um, and Milton Satan isn't at all like that. Um, Max, you'd read it before, yeah. um, so I'm sure you reread it. So <laughs> <laughs> the first two books are great. Yeah, oh, you don't um, like the rest, but especially um, debating what to do. It's a great conversation. Yeah, in um, book two. Yeah. Yep. Good. Yeah, when when all the rebel angels um, really have smart and deep things to say, yeah. um, even the selfish ones like Mammon. Um, Brian, what do you think? Had you read it before? Yeah, yeah, uh, but I haven't read it for a while. Um, I enjoyed it. I love the language. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, I guess, when I first read this book, I hadn't read as much Wallace Stevens. Uh-huh. So I was hearing a lot of Stevens, especially Sunday morning. Yes. Extended yeah. Wings. Yes, yeah. Chaos yeah. of Old Night. Uh-huh. Um, so that's kind yeah. of interesting. In an old dependency. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in an old dependency. Yeah. Um, he actually talks about bad angels and notes towards a, towards a supreme fiction. Um, yeah, that is. 
I'd been, I think that'd been on my mind because John yeah. Burt was talking about the Miltonic echoes and uh, notes towards the Supreme Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, so it's interesting to hear that then so strongly on Sunday morning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, there, there is. It's probably through Shelley. That is Stevens' Milton. Wallace Stevens' Milton is Shelley's Milton. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, um, that's great. If you were to continue with Paradise Lost, we're going to do a little bit of book three. Did you guys get the syllabus, by the way, um, as it stands now? Okay, good. So we'll do a little bit of book three later on. And it may be that um, don't sell your book back yet. In fact, keep it forever. Um, but it may be that there will be other um, uh, sections of Paradise Lost that we will um, want to have a look at. Um, the um, what happens in book three is there we do get God's point of view and um, God's point of view uh, doesn't actually make him likable um, it's not like the Iliad for example which is one of the things that Paradise Lost is based on um, we'll talk about this a little bit probably tomorrow more than today um, but one of the things that Paradise Lost is actually based on is um, the idea of a war. It starts in the middle of a war. Um, hey, Hello. how are you? I'm not good. I hate school. Oh, because of the weather or because of other stuff? Yeah, just because my laptop is like blazing with lots of emails now. With what? With the emails. Oh, yeah. And Yeah. Do you like Milton, then? I love Milton. Okay. I think he's a little pretentious, especially <laughs> in the beginning. Go on. When he's like, oh, I want to do what has not yet been attempted mm -hmm. in prose. Things unattempted I, yet in prose are wrong. I yeah. actually wrote in the book I was reading, who does he think he is? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, it's a really good. Well, that's a really good question. Who does he think he is? Because, shoot, I don't have my Oh, I do. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, it's a real question, who does he think he is? Because if you were, we were just talking about some of the rhyme um, precursors to Paradise Lost. That is to say, by, do people remember this? My song, Well, It Pursues, at the beginning of book one, um, he says that his song with no middle flight intends to soar while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. So that's in what's called the invocation to book one. Invocation of what or whom? What do you, epic, sorry? The muse, yeah, a particular muse in this case. Um, it, the muse is singular. Um, there's a muse for each kind of writing. So there's a muse for, for um, epic, a muse for history, a muse for... Um, um, uh, lyric um, it turns out we're going to find out that Milton is willing to call his well you're not going to find it out until you read all of Paradise Lost which I know you won't be able to stop um, but we will find out eventually that Milton calls his muse Urania um, um, he says if um, by that name rightly thou art called um, because you're not one of the original muses. Urania was one of the original muses. She's the muse of astronomy. Um, however, um, he then goes on to say, the meaning, not the name, I call. And so um, the muse of astronomy, because she's the muse of heaven, the muse of the skies. Um, and 
Um, so <clears throat> in the invocation of book one, there are um, just, this is for information, this is not a lecture class at all, but there are four um, general, why do you laugh at me, Ariel? You're laughing. You're just chuckling, skeptically chuckling. Um, now, what is a lecture, actually? Since the beginning of time, all right, um, um, there are, depending on how you count them, four or five invocations to the muses in Paradise Lost. Um, and most people will say four. I actually think they're five. Um, and they are um, the beginnings of books of Paradise Lost where Milton calls for aid from someone he will later call my celestial patroness. Um, that is someone who helps him from the heavens. Um, and he has to Im um, implore her for um, help to write the poem. Um, so fail not thou who thee implores, he says. Um, do not fail the person who implores you to help him. Um, however, those are um, among the few places in Paradise Lost where Milton seems humble at all. Um, and even in one of those places, as Tafar is pointing out, he's not that humble. So um, he begins the way the Iliad and the Odyssey begin, which is that he plunges, as we talked about last week, in medias race. He goes right into um, the action. Um, after the invocation to the muse, that is, he goes right into the action. The first thing that happens is that we're in the middle of this war that is taking place. Um, a battle is over, but the war continues. That's how the Iliad begins. Um, it's the Trojan War. It's the Achaeans versus the Trojans. And they've been at war for nine years. Um, and um, we begin during a time of um, truce, or at least a lull bet between battles, um, but the war is um, nevertheless in full swing, as it is in Paradise Lost. So when he uses the word rhyme, he says at the beginning of Paradise Lost that his song is going to pursue things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. Um, what he means by rhyme is poetry. Um, and one way you know that is um, if you read, which I doubt that you did because it's more reading, so why? Um, but if you read the note on the verse, which, begin, which is just before Book One of Paradise Lost, um, there he talks about why Paradise Lost is not a rhymed um, poem, R-H-Y-M-E-D, why there are no rhymes in it. Um, and he says that rhyme is a modern invention, and he gets this basically right. It's not entirely right, but it's basically right. Rhyme is a modern invention which poets have used to... Can you read Do you have it? Can you read it? Um, I'm going to bring it up on my iPad. A note on the verse? Yeah, I can see that part. I'm trying to see where you were. No, just read the I whole note. Okay. It's a, it's a short note. Yeah. <laughs> The measure is English heroic verse without rhyme, as that of Homer in Greek and of Virgil in Latin. So the first thing to see is he's comparing himself to Homer and Virgil. Rhyme being no necessary adjunct or true ornament of poem or good verse, in longer works especially, but the invention of a barbarous age to set off wretched matter and lame meter, 
graced indeed since by the use of some famous modern poets, carried away by custom, with much to their own vexation, hindrance, and constraint to express many things otherwise, and for the most part worse than else they would have, been, they would have expressed them. Not without cause, therefore, some both Italian and Spanish poets of a prime note have rejected rhyme both in longer and shorter works, as have also long since our best English tragedies, as a thing of itself to all judicious ears, trivial and of no true musical delight, which consists only in apt numbers, fit quantity of syllables, and a sense variously drawn out from one verse into another, not in the jingling sound of like endings, a fault avoided by the learned ancients, both in poetry and all good oratory. This neglect, then, of rhyme, so little is to be taken for a defect, though it may seem perhaps too vulgar, though it may seem so perhaps to vulgar readers, that it rather is to be esteemed an example set, the first in English of ancient liberty recovered to heroic poem from the troublesome and modern bondage of rhyme. Thank you. So here he um, lets out a dirty little secret that we all know, but all us English professors and students are supposed to pretend isn't so, which is that when you write a rhymed poem, you often have to say things differently and worse than you otherwise would have expected them. The fiction is when you read a rhymed poem, it's like every word is perfect, couldn't be better, and it's almost as though the rhymes turned out just to be accidental. It's like the best way of saying this, it turned out, whoa, the line endings rhyme too. Isn't that cool? Um, and of course, that's not true. So that um, if you've ever tried to write rhymed poetry, um, you will have said to yourself many times, of, above, dove, glove. Why isn't there more than one good rhyme for love? And so there's so many poems about love and do in which doves are symbols of love just because they rhyme. If love rhymed with, um, with eagle, then there'd be lots of poems about love and eagles. But because love rhymes with dove, there are lots of poems about um, love and dove. Um, and um, so what Milton, who was a very good rhymer, his earlier poetry did all rhyme. Um, um, what he's doing here is he's writing, as he says, in the form of ancient poetry, which didn't rhyme. Um, rhyme was pretty much invented in the West. Um, it's older in Chinese poetry. Um, but it was pretty much invented in the West around the year 1000, um, so a thousand years after Virgil. Um, and, um, you know, it's really good for jingles. It's really good for remembering how many days in the month. Um, but it tends not to be, says Milton, um, a way for people to express themselves as deeply as possible. Um, and he says, this is an important thing, um, that rhyme is of no true musical delight, and what true musical delight consists in is apt numbers, that is the right meter, apt numbers. So the meter is iambic pentameter um, for epic poems in English. We'll see this again in Wordsworth's Prelude. Fit quantity of syllables, um, which again is a metrical idea. Apt numbers also means the, the right meter to pick fit quantity of syllables, and the sense variously drawn out from one verse into another, which means enjambment. Does everyone know what enjambment is? So enjambment is when is the opposite of 18th century poetry. Um, enjambment is when two of the people in this class took the 18th century poetry class. That's why I'm mentioning it. Um, enjambment is when a line ending is not the same thing as a grammatical ending.
enjambment is when um, you get taught to read poetry aloud in high school and, and you're t told don't stop at the end of a line unless there's punctuation there. Enjambment is when there isn't punctuation. It literally means stepping over from one line to the next. So as you read, you keep walking, you keep taking the step to the next line. Um, so um, if you have the end of the sentence or the grammatical unit and um, if we don't see how Milton does this, if we won't have time to do that, we'll see how Wordsworth does it. Um, if the grammatical unit is not ending at the end of the line, then the idea is there's a kind of counterpoint between the grammar and the line. So that sometimes the grammar will end two syllables into the next line, Sometimes, so that Milton will say, unless an age too late or cold, I think that's the whole line. Um, no, it isn't, it's slightly longer. But it's unless an age too late or cold, next line, climate. And that's the end of a grammatical unit. Um, so there what's happening is the grammatical unit overflows or steps over to the next line and then stops within the next line. It may stop anywhere within the next line and um, it's the interplay and counterpoint between the dance of grammar and the ends of lines which for Milton is what true musical delight is. So if you read a lot of Paradise Lost, if you read a lot of blank verse, it's true about Shakespeare also. That's why he talks about how some dramatists have um, already given up in our best English tragedies, um, have already given, have already rejected rhyme. Um, but he gives a really, really powerful analysis of how unrhymed but metrical poetry works. Anyhow, all of that is a parenthesis. The point is he uses the word rhyme here to mean rhyme, but when he talks about things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme in book one, by rhyme there he means poetry. That's poetry for short. Um, I just wanted to point out one other thing though. Um, this Paradise Lost is to be esteemed an example set. What Milton thought, he wasn't quite right about this, but he believed that Paradise Lost was the first poem in English, not for drama, not for stage, that was written in blank verse. Um, Shakespeare wrote a lot of blank verse, but it was all dramatic. He thought this was the first poem for reading that was written in blank verse. There are a couple of earlier um, and fairly obscure poems of which that's true but this is close to being true. So he's writing what, <coughs> for almost all readers in English, is a brand new kind of poetry, which is unrhymed poetry. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think I, is it true to say like, the effect of the, like, the blank verse is that it's almost like he's shouting from a mountaintop. At least that's how I read it. Well, Once, whenever I opened the book, I imagine this Harry Potter thing when the books, like the books, speak back at you or like they shout. Uh huh. So I just open it, like I'm imagining Milton shouting at me in this old, old voice. Um, but I also noticed like it seems like it's like a almost a stream of consciousness. Like it's just he's just going yeah. and going. Yeah. But in between, it's like there are words that rhyme. But they're not necessarily in the same like position. Yeah. 
Yeah, so what he, he certainly has echoes. He'll have words echo each other. Oh. And he has what's called assonance, which is when the vowels are the same. Um, and even if you look at this, which is prose, um, notice that what he says, notice the, there's a kind of assonance um, in, sorry, um, this neglect then of rhyme, so little is to be taken for a defect. So do you think neglect and defect, they rhyme. Um, and so here, right in the middle of prose, he has two rhyming words, um, almost as though he's taken um, a rhymed couplet and turned it into prose. Um, so it's not, so the neglect of rhyme doesn't mean absolute refusal to rhyme. There's some poets who, and some, and many prose writers, who will avoid anything remotely like a rhyme like the plague. Um, Joyce is a good example of a prose writer whose use of vowels um, is so anti-rhyming um, that you get this strange other coloring to his language from anything that is um, like what poetry does. So he has this great line in his short story, The Dead, where he talks about dark, mutinous Shannon waves. Um, the main character is thinking about the storm that's occurring um, 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 off the coast of Ireland, off the coast of Shannon, and he thinks of dark, mutinous Shannon waves. And um, I don't think Joyce was explicitly um, taking note of this, but what his ear was hearing was the beauty of having a whole lot of vowels, all of which were different. Um, like when I say a whole lot of vowels, I've said ah in lot and ah in vowels. They're, those are the same vowels. Um, but for Joyce, it's dark, mutinous, Shannon waves. And um, that's the opposite of rhyming. Milton is not doing that at all. So you're going to get things like neglect and defect, um, even in his prose. Um, so, but the other thing to notice here is that he says this is an example set. Yeah, example set. Um, eggs and set, those are the same sounds. First in English, so the I in first and the I in English. Of ancient liberty, same I again, recovered to heroic poem from the troublesome and modern bondage of rhyming. Notice that he hears on the side of liberty, of ancient liberty against the bondage of rhyming. So this is a, so he is saying the form, the very, the very form that I'm writing my poetry in um, is revolutionary. And it's a revolution against bondage and slavery. And if you were to ask who in Paradise Lost could have written the note on this verse, the answer would be Satan. Satan. In a way, it's a satanic note. It's um, not satanic as in, ooh, that's satanic, but it's satanic as in, this is, this is Satan will agree with this. Yeah. So on that note, one of the questions I had reading this, um, I don't know much about Milton's politics, but I understand he was for democratic republicanism. He was a radical left-winger mm -hmm. by the standards of the time, and even by the standards of our time. And, and, and he was against the monarchy. Completely. And, and so I was confused what's happening. He keeps talking about 
or he has Satan calling God a monarch. Yes. And meanwhile, all the demons are having a democratic assembly. Exactly. And voting. So it's kind of perplexed what was happening because there seems to be this inversion. Well, it's only perplexing if you think he's not on Satan's side. Mm. In which case, it is perplexing. Um, so yeah, so what happens, again, very quick background, is there's a revolution in England that starts in 1642 and is complete in 1649. Do people know about this? Um, is this news to people? It's not news to you because we did an 18th century poetry. But Okay, revolution in 1642 um, because the king has essentially dismissed parliament, won't open the government. No, really, that's what's going on. Um, there's a shutdown of parliament. Um, and um, he's ruling autocratically. Um, and um, then Parliament um, rebelled against him, and there was an actual revolution. But, um, the Puritans, it was a Puritan revolution, Parliament um, was made up largely of Puritans, against the Royalists. Um, and um, Parliament defeated the king, and he agreed to make certain reforms, which he didn't, so the revolution then, then um, picked up steam again. And finally, the king was captured in 1648, and in early 1649, he was put on trial for treason, which is an amazing idea. Um, we would never think of that today. Um, that the ruler of the country could be essentially um, um, acting treasonously against the country. And um, the, um, Charles was put on trial, and he lost, and the penalty was death. Um, so he was beheaded. The King of England was beheaded in 1649. If this is familiar to you from the French Revolution, when the king is beheaded, um, everyone knows that, that Louis XVI was beheaded in um, 1794 in the French Revolution. They were consciously imitating the English Revolution. They took the English Revolution as um, a model for what they were doing. So the English Revolution of 1642 eventually led to the French Revolution of 1789, at which Wordsworth was present. He was in France during the days of the French Revolution. And Blake, I didn't put this on the syllabus, but if you're interested, we could. Um, Blake has a poem about the French Revolution, a long poem about the French Revolution. Um, so um, then, for 11 years, there's no king in England, and England is more or less a republic. Milton was a major official in the revolutionary government. He was um, what is called the Latin secretary, which we would now call the foreign secretary. That is, it was his job to represent England to the other European nations, all run by kings who were shocked by what was going on across the English Channel. Um, they called it monarch exit. No, that won't work. Never mind. Um, and um, um, Milton wrote um, several books about defending the execution of the king. Um, that is, that it was the right thing to do um, and that it was absolutely imperative that this king, who ruled with absolute sway and who was a fraud, um, should be executed. Um, in 1660, the king's son, Charles II, after um, um, 11 years of, of uh, swamp drained in London, um, the king's son, Charles II, 
um, things were going badly in England, and the king's son, Charles II, came back from France, where he and his court had been in exile, um, and they were greeted with adulation by the English crowds, and he was restored to the throne. So that's called the Restoration. And many, many people got into a whole lot of trouble who had been part of the execution of his father, Milton among them. And um, he had to be saved by influential friends from being beheaded himself. And he was imprisoned for a while and then put into a kind of internal exile. And then he wrote Paradise Lost. So the context of Paradise Lost is after a failed revolution against a monarch who ruled with absolute sway and who was completely undemocratic, um, the revolutionaries who are on the side of democracy and on the side of voting are defeated in their revolution and sent to this dungeon called hell where they think about what to do next. And so for Milton's own background, this is similar enough that it's hard not to think at the very least, but of course I think you should think a lot more than this, but at the very least, it's hard not to think that he knows what it's like to be in Satan's shoes, to be defeated by a king when you were rebelling on the side of freedom, when, when your rebellion was um, meant to um, um, promote and to um, uh, spread freedom everywhere, um, and then to have um, superior force defeat you, um, and now to be to have lost not because your ideas were worse, but because um, might makes right rather than right making might. Um, so that's the context that Milton is writing in. So the least you can say, and I think it, I think everyone agrees with this is that Milton um, knows what it's like to be a defeated revolutionary. Um, a stronger thing, which is what um, Ryan was asking about, is um, is that a good reason to think that Milton is on Satan's side rather than on God's side? That is, is, Satan, um, is Milton sympathetic with Satan all the way through? Now, as we said before, you haven't seen God's point of view here, but when we do see God's point of view, um, it's kind of uh, contemptuous of um, anyone who doesn't love God. It's kind of um, 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 mean about them. There's very little that God says where you can feel of God that um, he is uh, <coughs> in any way a God that's easy to love. And, he's, and it's not even good that he's hard to love because, it's because the only people who seem to love him are people who, these are the loyal angels, are figures who um, either love brown-nosing, which they certainly, a lot of them certainly do, um, or do it out of fear. Um, so the God in Paradise Lost is a really questionable God. Um, and maybe more than questionable. The son of God in Paradise Lost, however, is somewhat different. The son of God in Paradise Lost is the one who speaks on behalf of human beings who are about to be sent to hell with Satan and his minions. 
and the son of God um, actually spends a lot of time managing his father um, and um, uh, suggesting ways that he doesn't have to be quite as um, cruel as it otherwise seems he would be. Anyhow, that's what we start seeing in book three of Paradise Lost. Um, and uh, we, as I say, we probably won't do uh, much of it in this class, but we'll certainly do the invocation to book three. Um, but then what Tafaro was, was uh, complaining about was when Milton says he's going to do things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. Um, and again, so if you take rhyme to mean the Iliad, and rhyme to mean the great epic poems that have come before him, which would be, he would be specifically thinking of the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid. That's fine, but what does he mean by prose? So things unattempted yet in the great epic poems from the Greek and Latin tradition, and things also unattempted in, so what would be the parallel of that? in another ancient tradition? The Bible. Bible. So what he's going to do in Paradise Lost is something that Homer, Milton, and Virgil didn't even attempt to do in their great epics. And also what God didn't attempt to do and the prophets and and Moses didn't attempt to do in the Bible. So... The arrogance here is more than you were, even even more than you were suggesting. But it's what he's trying to do. He's trying to tell a story here, the story of Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He's trying to tell a story here that um, um, somehow the Bible didn't tell uh, deeply enough. Which isn't that unfair, since he's spending 12 books um, of an average of about 800 lines each um, telling a story that the Bible tells over two pages. Um, So he is going into very great detail about the story and making a lot of stuff up. Um, But he says, you know, no one ever really tried to tell the story that I'm now going to try to tell. Yeah. um, Is it true that he, like, dictated it to his daughter? Yeah, he was blind. Um, that's another thing uh, which is um, part of the, the topic of the invocation of book three, where he talks about his own blindness. Um, European um, anti-English writers made fun of Milton's blindness when he was foreign um, secretary. Um, and they said, see, God punished him by making him blind, and now he thinks it's okay to defend the killing of a king. Um, he went blind. Um, he lost his sight um, kind of in fits and starts, but by, the, by 1650 or 1651, um, he was completely blind, and he was blind for the rest of his life. Like Homer. Like Homer, whom he mentions as another blind person, and like Tiresias, the blind prophet. Um, so he says, you know, there have been some pretty impressive blind people, um, equaled with me in fate, as he puts it. Um, so he's blind as they are, um, and the result is that, yes, he dictates Paradise Lost. Um, he would spend um, all night um, composing, and, um, and then the next morning he would dictate between um, 20 and 40 lines of Paradise Lost. And he did this um, usually um, in the spring and summer um, f- over the course of about eight years. Um, and... Um, 
but you know he basically had the poem memorized. It wasn't um, that he was writing without having. Writers need access to what they've already written, but like Homer, he had a Homeric kind of memory, which is that he knew everything he'd said. One of the amazing things about Homer is how how ridiculously consistent the Iliad and the Odyssey are. They don't. They're, they're, Homer almost never makes a mistake, and he has this incredibly complex series of nested stories that are looping in and out of each other with lots of retrospects and so on. And he always remembers what he's already said. Um, and Milton was like that as well. Um, so it's not wrong to treat it as though um, he could flip back and read any page whenever he wanted and could skim through it and knew what he was saying. He had the whole thing in his head. Um, so that's just... Um, uh, you may be tempted thinking, oh, he was blind, we're reading it too closely because he himself couldn't have read it this closely. This is not for this class because we're not going to be doing that, but in general. Um, but it wouldn't be true. Milton really did have the whole thing in his head. Um, yeah, so that's um, um, another reason to think of Milton as being, to quote Blake again, of the devil's party. Uh, the without knowing it is among those who think he's of the devil's party. The without knowing it part, which Blake adds, that Milton was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it, um, there's some debate about whether he knew it or not among those who think he was of the devil's party. Those who think he wasn't um, are those who think that um, that's just a completely perverse and misguided reading of Paradise Lost. Um, and the most famous of those in the 20th century is C.S. Lewis. Um, so um, the Chronicles of Narnia um, are kind of a retelling of Paradise Lost, um, where it's clear that um, the lion is good and God is good and the witch is bad and she's Satan and the lion is God and Christ. Um, that at least in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, part. Um, and Lewis wrote a book called A Preface to Paradise Lost in which he talks about how terrible it is to be on Satan's side in Paradise Lost. Um, that you're, How many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or seen the not very good movie? Um, so remember how Edmund goes with the White Witch? Um, the Turkish Delight, the fruit. Yes, because oh of the Turkish Delight. Yeah. Um, and how wrong he is to do that. Um, so that is um, what C.S. Lewis basically says is anyone who's on Satan's side, see how much Edmund there is in you because maybe you'll find out that you yourself are, you may think of yourself as good, but you're not. Um, and that is um, his argument. Uh, the great counter argument in YA literature um, is Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. Um, which Pullman explicitly... How many people have read Pullman? Um, have you read the new volume? Uh, yeah, the one that's like the prequel. Yeah. I bought it, I haven't finished it. Yeah, the, the sec he's just finishing the second one. He may have finished it. I had, I, I, we have a correspondence, um, and uh, he, I was asking him about something else, but he said he was really busy finishing the second volume, which he had to finish by the end of December, so... Um, I hope he has. Um, so, but he specifically is writing against C.S. Lewis, um, and he says so in in um, things that he says that Lewis is giving you the 
what's called the angelic reading of Paradise Lost, that is on the side of the angels, and Pullman is giving you the um, satanic reading of Paradise Lost. Um, and that's, in Pullman, it's the, consist, the uh, consistory versus um, the rebels. Um, okay, so that's a quick background to Paradise Lost and also to Blake's reading of Paradise Lost. Um, we'll do more about book one, but let's go back to Holy Thursday. Uh, did people bring it? I'm sorry, not Holy Thursday, the nurse's song. Anyone need a copy? Okay, so um, just to remind us, I think it's worth rereading them again, um, rereading both of them. Would someone read the Innocent Nurses song aloud? Tafara? <clears throat> when the voices of children are heard on the green and laughing is heard on the hills, my heart is at rest within my breast, and everything else is still. Then come home, my children, the sun is gone down, and the dews of night arise. Come, come, leave off play, and let us away, till the morning appears in the skies. No, no, let us play, for it is yet day, and we cannot go to sleep. Besides, in the sky the little birds fly, and the hills are all covered with sheep. Well, well, go and play till the light fades away, and then go home to bed. The little ones leaped and shouted and laughed, and all the hills echoed. 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 Yeah. Um, especially in songs like this, you have to, if you have to force them to rhyme, then force them to rhyme. It's fine. Um, that's part of the nursery rhyme quality of the songs. Um, okay, and someone read the other nurse's song? Olivia, uh, you knew that was coming. Uh, when the voices of children are heard on the green and whisperings are in the dale, the days of my youth press fresh in my mind and my face turns green and pale. Then come home, my children, the sun has gone down and the dews of night arise. Your spring and your day are wasted in play and your winter and night in disguise. Great, thank you. Um, so what we were talking about last week was... Um, who the speaker of these poems is, are, who, um, is there more than one speaker? Are they different speakers of the two poems? Um, how do we get from the innocent poem to the experienced poem? Um, notice that the move from innocence to experience is like um, the fall from heaven or from the Garden of Eden. Um, that is what, do you remember what the fruit is? Um, in Genesis, the fruit of the tree of what? Knowledge. Knowledge, yeah. So what happens is Adam and Eve, or even Adam in that order, eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And then God says that, this is quoting Genesis, man is become like one of us to know the difference between good and evil. And so the idea is once they eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, it's the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That is, they know good and they know evil, and they know there's a difference between them. 
And if you think about it, we're so used to it if we know the story <coughs> that we don't tend to think about it much. But if you think about it, um, that has some kind of experiential um, um, validity for us because it kind of describes um, something that happens between childhood and adulthood, which is that when you're a child um, and when you remember childhood, um, just one easy way to put it is you didn't know about death. And remembering it now, it seems a time which can seem like paradise, unless you had a, a particularly bad early childhood, um, where you were surrounded, um, where you felt secure. And then at some point in life, you stopped feeling secure. And um, it's at that point where you actually know the good, you know what was good. Emerson, in uh, the American philosopher and writer Emerson in the 19th century, um, he met Wordsworth once. Um, said, childhood is the Messiah that beckons us back to a lost paradise. That is, that childhood is what um, um, reminds you of what paradise might be like. And we liked it, or we remember liking it, without feeling um, that, there, that we liked it out of contrast with something. It wasn't this is good, whereas that is bad. It was simply this is good, and we didn't have to think that there was any issue with its being good. Um, we had the concept of good, you could say, without the concept of evil. At least that's what it seems like now. Um, whereas, after the fall, you can only know good by contrast with evil, because you also have to know evil. And evil is something like... Um, what Milton will call it, a universe of death. The fact that the world is a world in which everyone dies, including yourself, all those you love, and you die. And um, that is um, also a universe of sin, because if that's true, you can't count on things coming to you, um, but you start being manipulative. In a, in a Darwinian world, you could say, in a dog-eat-dog world, and that's where sin comes from. In Genesis, this is not true in Milton, by the way. One thing, in, one thing Milton makes very clear in um, Paradise Lost is that Adam and Eve are having sex in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Um, for Milton, there's no problem uh, with sex as sinful, and um, not only are Adam and Eve having sex, but the angels have sex with each other. And not only do the angels have sex with each other, but the angels are um, ungendered, or they are multiply gendered. That is, any angel can have sex with any other angel. Um, and the way they have sex is because they don't have bodies, as, as the angel Raphael puts it. He blushes when Adam asks what... Um, Adam talks to the archangel Raphael before the fall, and Raphael is explaining all sorts of things to him. And Adam says, well, I do have one more question. Um, after you've, all this stuff you've explained, um, you say heaven is this really, really great place. Um, um, well, one thing that Eve and I really like is having sex. Um, and uh, does that happen in heaven? 
And Raphael then blushes and says, um, you know that we're happy. All I'm going to tell you about this is that you know that we angels are happy. And without love, there's no happiness. But then he goes on a little bit and he says, and think about what it would be like if you're made of spirit instead of bodies so that um, there's all sorts of integuments and barriers to prevent full penetration of one person by another. So when you humans have sex, it's like eight inches of sex. Um, When angels have sex, um, there's nothing preventing complete um, interpenetration. Um, And then he says, but let's change the subject. Um, And he does. Um, At that point, it's important for Blake also. Yes, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, Blake is um, very much an advocate of... um, of eroticism. Um, and um, the uh, standard reading of Genesis is something like this that Adam and Eve are happy in the garden, and then Eve meets a snake, a serpent. So, what kind of symbol are serpents usually if they're symbolic? Hint, it starts with a PH. Phallic. Yeah, serpents are always phallic symbols. If you see a serpent in any myth or um, folklore or anything, and the first thing you should think is, could it be a phallic symbol? And usually the answer will be yes. Um, so it's the serpent who offers Eve the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. <coughs> she eats the fruit, she gives it to Adam, and then God goes walking in the garden and says, where are you? And it turns out they've been hiding. And God says, why have you been hiding? And they said, well, we were ashamed because we were naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat that fruit? So the fruit seems to be a fruit that gives Adam and Eve knowledge of the fact that they're naked. And um, it gives them the embarrassed knowledge of being naked. So if you think about it, you have a phallic symbol saying to Eve, taste this delicious fruit and the result of that is she gives Adam the fruit to taste also so they both taste this delicious fruit and then they become aware that they're naked and so an easy reading of what's going on there psychologically is if you forget that it's a that it's a bible and just take it like any other folktale or myth an easy reading of what's going on there psychologically is that it's about the coming of puberty the becoming of the coming of sexual awareness, um, the coming of sexuality into your life at the time of puberty. So before puberty, um, everything looks um, um, like it all makes sense, and then sexuality comes into your life, and with that comes all the kinds of anxiety and uncertainty and um, also sense of sinfulness that um, comes into life at puberty. And that's not Milton's reading of it, but it's a standard reading. And so one way of describing the difference between innocence and experience, and it's a standard way, if you talk about a person being innocent, being a poor summer child, as George R. R. Martin puts it, um, it's a pre-sexual. Those who are, you know, you look at the innocence, I mean, it's a standard word 
for those who, are, who um, have not yet had a sexual awakening. And if you call someone experienced, it will often mean that they have erotic experience, um, that, that, that for them um, sexuality has become a part of their life, um, and that they are adults in that sense, um, that um, whatever comes into your life with sexuality, which is adulthood, um, is something that such people have. So the difference between the two nurses' songs, um, the first nurses' song, the Song of Innocence, um, the children are innocent. They're um, playing laughing is heard on the hill and um, they just want to play and in the sky the little birds fly and the hills are all covered with sheep and so they laugh and they leap and shout and laugh and the hills echo. Um, so no hint of sexuality in that. What about in the Song of Experience? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of hints. Yes. Because she has a visceral reaction to it. Yeah. And um, we talked about, and whisperings are in the Dale rather than whisperings are heard in the Dale, right? Um, notice that it feels like there's a word missing. So when the, the, um, the innocent song is when the voices of children are heard on the green and laughing is heard on the hill... So it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and laughing is heard on the hill, and whisperings are what in the dale? And whisperings are heard in the dale. That would be the perfect parallel. Um, and it would be a perfect parallel. The word heard appears twice in the first two lines of the Innocence Song, right? So you would expect, and whisperings are heard in the dale. Why does he leave out the word heard? Here yeah. So how does she know there are whisperings in the Dale? She, she, she's skeptical of it, or she's suspicious. She's suspicious. In a way, it's because nothing is heard. So it's um, if the children were being like children, you could hear them. But you can't hear them, which means that they're intentionally, what you can hear is the silence. They're intentionally not making sound. Um, when birds start stop singing, then you look up to see whether a storm is coming. Um, so the silence itself is um, what is making her suspicious. And then the days of my youth rise fresh in my mind. My face turns green and pale. Green with what? Envy. Yeah, envy of whom? The children. The children. So why did the days of her youth rise in her mind? What does she mean by youth here? Um, 
experiencing or becoming conscious of sexuality and good and evil? Yeah. So when people talk about their youth, um, a lot of what they mean by their youth will depend on how old they are. So if a first-year student at Brandeis talks about her youth, um, she probably means like elementary school or middle school, um, probably elementary school. Um, whereas when your grandmother talks about her youth, um, that's not what she means. She means when she was a college student or in her 20s or something like that. Youth is relativized that way. Do you guys agree? Is this... Um, so if you know that someone is talking about the days of their youth, you would have to have some sense of, of how old they were when they used that phrase. Um, the very phrase, days of my youth, though, that sounds um, like an older person's phrase, right? Um, First-year students don't talk about the days of their youth. They, can, they talk about when they were very young, but they don't talk about the days of their youth. Do they? Do you guys talk about the days of your youth uh, in my youth in a serious way? I don't think so. Yeah, you're just shaking your head with contempt. It's such a geezerish phrase. Um, well, in my youth, it wasn't a geezerish phrase. Um, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> good. Um, so what? So by youth here, she doesn't mean the time. This is what you're saying, Tafar. She doesn't mean the time of innocence. She means what time then? The time of erotic excitement, the time of um, erotic possibility. Um, and and going by the hill would be yeah. you know, mischievous in yeah. an exciting way. Yeah, whispering. Um, there's a little bit of a yeah, there's a little bit of a sound of music um, quality to this, if you if you actually know the movie or the musical. Um, that is it's not, um, it's not Julie Andrews with the little kids. Um, it's the adolescents who are sneaking off at night um, with the Nazis. Um, <laughs> and um, that's what's rising fresh in her mind. Um, so how old is the nurse, just on the basis of that, those four lines, how old is the nurse in the Song of Experience? Compare, or compared to the nurse in the Song of Innocence? Okay. Yeah, it seems like she's older. Um, you could possibly make the opposite argument that the nurse in the Song of Innocence is older um, because she's no longer, she no longer feels the kinds of stirrings that um, would make her envious of adolescence. Um, and she can, you, she can go back to liking really little children and thinking of them as important in a way that the nurse in The Song of Experience um, can't because um, she is feeling like I was recently an adolescent and I'm really jealous that, that that's disappearing, that those possibilities and those times are disappearing. I think you could see it that way. Um, I don't think it makes much of a difference, um, but you can tell, but, but an easier way to see it is to see the nurse's song in The Song of Innocence as um, being someone who isn't anxious about what's happened to her sexual life and therefore is younger, and the nurse in The Song of Experience is. But I think it's, hold on to that question because I think it matters. 
Um, when you look at the pictures, because you have two depictions of nurses. Yeah, so um, these are both Blake's um, watercolors, actually. Um, and in the first one, you have the nurse outside watching the children dancing. And in the second one, how would you describe the nurse in the second one? I'm wondering if there's a color version of that in here. There probably isn't, but how would you describe the nurse in the second one? Yeah, and she seems a little bit stern about it, do you think? And what's in the background? No, there isn't one of those here. What do we see in the background of the second one? Is that a child? Do you think he's a child who's sitting there? Are you getting a color version? Yeah, I have a color version. You want to show it? Oh, is that on archive.org? It's just not a Google images. Yeah. So why don't you go to the image? So. But even just look at the Xerox. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so the first one is reading, and the kids are dancing, and they're all in a group. The second one, one child is isolated. The nurse is combing her hair, and behind her is someone sitting there waiting. Is he asleep? Oh, great. Can you pass that around? Is that okay? Yeah. So she's admonishing her as well, right? Yeah. Because they had snuck off together. Yeah. So she's doing what she's supposed to be doing, which is caring for her and grooming her. Um, yeah, so this one, it's not clear that that's a boy in the back. I think he did different versions of these. So, um, I think it's a male figure in the back in this one as well, but um, I would bet less on it than on the Xerox version. Do you think that's a male figure with long hair who's sitting in the back? So, what were they doing when she intervened? Well, at least they were whispering. Um, and now there's clearly they want to be with each other the way the kids are with each other in the first drawing. Um, but no, the nurse is intervening. And um, whatever her intervention, it's not something the children are happy about. But okay, so whisperings are in the Dale. Yeah. So now I'm just thinking about the combed hair. I'm thinking about Eve's disheveled locks. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Eve's locks in Paradise Lost are famously disheveled. Um, many wanton ringlets is the, After the, the fall? Um, no, before. Um, it's part of, part of what Milton is trying to do is explain how Adam and Eve can be recognizably human and how they can fall um, 
um, if they are innocent and in the Garden of Eden. So one of the things that makes Paradise Lost so amazing a poem and makes the task that Adam set himself in Paradise Lost so difficult a task is that he has to um, essentially show that you can be human, recognizably human, and unfallen, or recognizably human and fallen without there being much difference in what you're recognizing in an unfallen human being and in a fallen human being. And so what that means is that Adam and Eve in Paradise Lost are, well, they're having sex. They're fun-loving. They like um, uh, teasing. They like sexual teasing. Um, The kind of sex they're having is actually fun sex and not... Um, ideal sex, which how could that possibly be fun? Um, so um, they like they like playing sexual games, for example. Um, their Eve is not so sure she finds Adam all that good looking, um, and so things in Eden are perfect, but in an imperfect way, or maybe imperfect but in a perfect way. Um, but it's the imperfection let's say imperfect but in a perfect way, it's that imperfection, even if it's perfect, um, that makes the fall believable. Milton really has to describe people who, are, who, who would eat the fruit and who are therefore like us because we would obviously eat the fruit. Um, we do all the time. Um, who would eat the fruit and yet who have not sinned and who are not sinners. And so he has to find some really interesting overlap um, between um, being not sinful and being open to temptation. Um, He doesn't have to do that with Satan. What God will say of the fallen angels is that they are self-tempted and therefore they will never be forgiven. Um, But the real trick is to explain the temptation of Adam and Eve. if they're perfect, nothing should tempt them. If they're tempted, then they then they shouldn't be. Then how could they be perfect? Um, and that's what he's doing in Paradise Lost. So what that means is, yeah, there's gonna her Eve's hair is disheveled. Um, the very things that make life um, good in Eden, recognizably good to us. Um, heaven is not recognizably good to us. When, it, when you read the description of heaven in Paradise Lost, um, you will feel... Do you guys know who talking heads are? Um, so one person knows. David Byrne. Yeah, yeah David Byrne. Um, and the rest so, of them. And the rest of them. Yeah, <laughs> Tina Weymouth. Um, I couldn't name you more. <laughs> um, um, so they are, they are a great um, new wave rock band. Um, David Byrne is still doing stuff. Um, the rest of them turned into Tom Tom Club for a while. So you, you learn things in this class. Um, and um, they have a great song called Heaven. Um, and more, building, and more songs about building and food is the name of the album. And um, Heaven, the line is, Heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. Um, and uh, um, there's a line, when this kiss is over, it will start all over again. It will not be any different. It will be exactly the same. Um, And 
that's kind of like Knowlton's Heaven, is what the angels entertain themselves by doing is singing hymns of praise to God all the time. Um, that's basically what happens in heaven. And um, there's no question that if we were given the choice between Eden and heaven, we would choose Eden. We would choose the lesser, officially lesser place. And even given a choice between earth and heaven, we might choose earth. Uh, Robert Frost says he would. Earth's the right place for love, he says. I don't know where it's likely to go better um, in his great poem, Birches. And um, so what Milton does is he gives us a recognizably appealing human place, a place where you would feel fulfilled as a human being. But you would also feel fulfilled with a different emphasis as a human being. And so he makes Adam and Eve human, though unfallen. And that's a really hard thing to do. Um, but he does it. And that's what makes the fall plausible when Milton describes it. Adam's fall is easy. I mean, relatively easy. Um, the fall of Eve is the hardest thing Milton has to describe, why Eve falls. Um, and the answer is that Adam is just, even though it's Eden, Adam is a little sexist. And a little sexist isn't something that Eve is really that happy about. Um, it's all fine, it's all good, but he's a little sexist. And the serpent says, if you eat the fruit, he won't be able to be a little sexist to you anymore. Um, and she likes that idea. And Adam's being a little sexist is because he's recognizably a human and spends a lot of time mansplaining stuff to Eve. Um, and that's, as I say, an amazing thing that Milton does. Um, at any rate, um, so two kinds of youth here. They're the children in the innocent song, and then there's the youth. The days of my youth rise fresh in my mind. My face turns green and pale. And you can feel that this nurse is recalling what it was like when her sexual life was blooming. So she's not recalling the childhood of the innocent song. She's recalling um, the time of um, sexual adventure, of sexual excitement, of whispering in the dale. Whisperings are in the dale. And she knows that there are whisperings in the dale, even though she can't hear them. She knows they're there because she recognizes what's going on. So then, come home, my children, the sun has gone down and the dews of night arise. Um, so same couplet. And then your spring and your day are wasted in play. What does play mean there? It's not, no, no, let us play, for it is yet day. Here it's your spring and your day are wasted in play. Yeah? I feel like your virginity, your experiencelessness, and your youth. Yeah. Yeah. But what kind of play is this? Is this playing with dolls, or is it playing with 
other people's bodies. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Olivia, what were you about to say? Uh, oh, nothing. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think I, I'm sort of getting a different okay. meaning of the play. Uh, like, because there's an element of responsibility mm-hmm. that is in the, the experienced nurses song that is not in the, uh, the innocent in one. So it's like, well, the idea of like wasting your days, it's like they're supposed to be conscious of like a responsibility to be economic or there's a responsibility mm-hmm. hanging yeah, above them. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then in the first one, when they're like, no, let us play for it is day, and then she's like, okay, just go. Yeah. It's like there's no responsibility. It's like right. there are no yeah. stakes. There's yeah. no responsibility. It's just an endless, like, same world over and over again. Yeah. But here it's like they have something to lose. Yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're wasting it when they should be, I don't know, working hard. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, <coughs> they're sneaking off um, to um, smooch behind the barn um, or to whisper in the dell. And then your winter and night in disguise, even when you're older, you will disguise yourself as though you're all prim and proper and puritan, maybe, when um, it's clear what, how sinful you are, what's really on your mind, your winter and night in disguise. Okay, so back to the speakers, because I think this is where Blake gets really subtle, is clearly there's a sense, right, that each nurse proves that the other nurse can't quite be a real person. That is, if you think, it's not only that the interpretation of children is different between these songs. Um, that could be one way of reading it, that in one poem, children are interpreted as innocent, and in the second song, children are interpreted as not innocent, experienced in the Blakean um, fallen sense of experienced. Um, if you, have you guys watched The Wire? A couple episodes. Okay, well, D'Angelo starts out innocent and ends up experienced. He would be a really good example of someone who goes from innocence to experience in The Wire. It's great. Um, um, uh, Mad Men, uh-huh. um, the secretary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she yeah. yeah that's a really good example. Um, but the, it's not so much that the children change, it's that the interpretation of them changes. And if the interpretation of them changes, that's because the interpreter changes. And if the interpreter changes between these two poems, that's because Blake's or our, Blake as writer, or we as readers, interpret the nurse differently from the Song of Innocence to the Song of Experience. Let's say Blake does it. It means we do it also because we're being asked to um, understand his interpretations. But you could say that not Blake himself, because of course he knew what he was doing throughout, but let's introduce one other kind of pseudo-figure, which is not the speaker of a poem, right? We talked about this last week, that 
that at some point you are taught to distinguish between the speaker and the poet. Um, so that Dunn could write a poem um, in which the speaker was a woman and whatever else Dunn was, he was never a woman. Um, so the speaker and the poet are different people. Um, but we can also make a distinction between something like the author and the presenter of the poems. So Blake writes a book called Songs of Innocence. And as author, he's saying, we talked about this a little bit before, that of course these songs of innocence imply that innocence is limited, that you only know the word innocence if you know that um, there's something else, that innocence is a word whose meaning you can only know when you don't have it. However, the presenter of the book, there are other possible ways of describing this figure, but the presenter of the book is one who believes in innocence. Look, songs of innocence. And the presenter of the book, unlike Blake, is not asking us to think that he doesn't believe in anything besides, um, in, that there is something besides innocence. The presenter of the book is the person who believes that these are songs of innocence. Does that make sense to people? It's a subtle, um, there's a really subtle layering that occurs between author and reader. And a standard thing to say is there's author, narrator, then a figure called the narratee to whom the narrator is telling the story, and then the reader. So usually a standard thing to say in fiction in the presentation of a fictional work is that there are kind of four, I'm simplifying a little bit um, the standard, but there are four um, different um, perspectives that you should take on a work of fiction. There's the author, who's a real biographical person who um, sleeps and um, eats and drinks. Then there is the narrator, who is the person who's telling us the story. One difference between an author and a narrator is that the narrator believes that what he is saying is true, whereas, or knows what he's saying is true, whereas the author knows it's fiction. If Jane Austen um, says that uh, Darcy um, is um, um, a, a charismatic figure, um, Jane Austen doesn't believe that because Jane Austen knows that Darcy doesn't exist. It's her narrator who believes that, because the narrator is saying true things in a fictional world, whereas Jane Austen is saying fictional things in a real world. Does that make sense? This is even in third-person narration. In first-person narration, you know, because I couldn't pronounce the word Philip, people always called me Pip. That's not true of Charles Dickens. It's true of the narrator of Great Expectations. Um, so there's an author and a narrator. The narrator is telling the story to a narratee. And the best way to understand this, just give me one more minute unless you have to rush off, but the best way to understand this is think of a science fiction novel where in a science fiction novel, the narrator of a science fiction novel will say, well, we did the infinite um, infilabulator and the conapt was filled with, and there'll be all sorts of BS science fiction terminology um, that doesn't refer to anything. But 
And we don't understand what it's about, but we know we're not supposed to. That it's just a bunch of terminology. That if the antimatter, you know, if Scotty says on Star Trek, um, the antimatter engines or whatever, um, there are no such things. Um, but we, in a novel, a novelization, are assuming that there is someone for whom this story is true, who would understand what those things are, and that figure is called the narratee. If you think of reading a 19th century novel with all sorts of 19th century terminology, um, we don't know what half of that means. We don't know the difference between a kalesh and a coach and a diligence. Um, we just know that people ride in them. But the original reader would know, and that's the narratee. And then there's us, the real world readers. So we're like authors, narrators are, nar are like narratees. That's the simple version. Um, we'll pick it up from there. Tomorrow.